Welcome everyone to the eighth episode in the Agilent podcast series. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Victoria Wadsworth and I'm the Associate Vice President of Brand, Business PR and Customer Experience at Agilent Technologies. Like most companies, at Agilent we're often asked about who we are and what we stand for. These podcasts address who we are as a business by discussing the values and themes close to our heart and the hearts of our customers. In each of our podcast episodes, we investigate a specific theme with the help of three experts, all with their own unique point of view. In this episode, our theme is environmental threats and their impact on human health. This is a critical issue, and one we have a stake in at Agilent as partners in laboratory analysis. Of course, this topic is far-reaching, with environmental threats to human health appearing globally at both the micro and macro level. To start exploring this topic today, I first wanted to ground us in the big picture. So I met with Dr. Gerardo Sanchez, an expert in how climate change can impact human health. My name is Gerardo Sanchez, and I'm a senior advisor on health and climate at the UNEP-DTU partnership in Copenhagen, Denmark. It's great to speak with you, Gerardo. I'd love to know a little more about your work. My area of expertise is the interface between health, the environment, and economic systems. And I focus particularly on the health effects or the health impacts of climate change and how to prevent those health impacts through both prevention at the public health level and also at the broader policy level. So let's start right at the top. What is climate change as we refer to it today? And what risks does it present to human health? Climate has changed throughout history, but now it's changing really fast. And globally, we know pretty well that it's due to uh, human activities. It's changing fast and it's very dangerous because climate affects almost everything we need. Water, food, cleaner. And we also are seeing that there's a lot more dangerous climate extremes like floodings and uh, strong storms and heat waves. In the last 20 years, we've gotten 14 of the 15 warmest years on record. And uh, there's no indication that this is going to get better. Climate change impacts health in many, many, many different ways. Actually, the complexity of those causal pathways is huge. For instance, it is increasing not only the number, but also the intensity of heat waves and extreme heat. It is making drinking water scarcer, thus making providing safe water and sanitation even more difficult. So at a species level, there's clearly an existential threat. But at the other end of the spectrum, how can climate change directly impact individual human health? I think what most people need to understand about uh, the environment, uh, human health and also economics is that you cannot really separate those systems. I think an illustrative example, both like in North America and in Northern Europe, is the expansion of tick-borne diseases. We have pretty good evidence that to a large extent it is driven by climate change and that is increasing not only the range of the ticks, but also their activity. And we're seeing a lot of cases of tick-borne diseases, such as Lyme disease or tick-borne encephalitis. So it really affects health in many, many different ways. We are just only starting to understand the extent of those impacts. So in this field, what's the nature of your work at the UNEP DTU? We basically collaborate with two types of institutions. On one hand, we work a lot with international organizations, such as uh, the WHO and other UN organizations. 
then most of our interaction is actually with national governments whom we advise on national level government policies. And what does that involve on the front line? Typically, you would try to assess the exposure of the population to a certain risk. So it could be like high temperatures, it could be air pollution, specifically inhalable particulate matter. You would then combine that with the health indicators that you're looking at in a given population. Those could be mortality, and it could be hospital admissions, or even less clinical, so to speak. What outcomes do you aim for in your work? We aim at helping governments uh, making decisions based on evidence. Our work is designed to influence environmental policies, environmental programs, and also public health programs. The work we do fits usually directly into national policies in the countries we work with. Beyond that, at the regional level and global level, the work we do with WHO and with other institutions typically fits into global guidelines or recommendations. What can we do as individuals to do our part? I think the most important part is for people to be informed and involved in trying to change the systems that are actually the main drivers of greenhouse gas emissions and of climate change. The truth is that the large part of those emissions come from large systems, such as the energy system and the infrastructures. Those are heavily dominated by interest groups. So in that regard, one of the best things that individuals could do was organizing themselves and making sure that they can fight against subsidies that are given to these market-distorting systems, right? Such as, for instance, energy subsidies. And at a corporate level, what advice do you have for businesses looking to operate sustainably? To larger corporations that want to do more about climate change and to reduce the impacts of climate change, I would say that they should try and really internalize sustainability in the way they do things. They should go beyond compliance. They should make themselves into champions of sustainability. And it's very likely that they will pay off in every bottom line, environmental, financial, and uh, social and economic. Thank you, Gerardo. With Gerardo's big picture perspective on the links between our environment and our health in mind, it made me wonder what was going on at a more granular level. I turned inside to Agilent for the next conversation to hear from one of our leaders on global environmental analysis. My name is Tarun Anamal, and I'm the director for global environment and food markets with Agilent Technologies. Thank you for joining us, Tarun. I wonder if to start, you could tell us how you got into the field of contaminant research. I started in the lab with Agilent after earning my PhD in environmental engineering. And my focus at Agilent in the lab as an applications scientist was to develop analytical methods for emerging organic contaminants. I transitioned into a strategic role with Agilent around two years ago with a business focus around managing global environmental testing markets. And I've since also transitioned into managing our global food testing markets. So can you tell us a little more about emerging contaminants? What do we mean by that term? Emerging contaminants are chemicals that we didn't know were present in our environment till very recently. One of the things with emerging contaminants is, you know, as we've had rapid globalization and industrialization, we've created a lot more products, both for industrial processes and for personal use, 
that have made our quality of life better. But this also means that we've released a lot more chemicals into our air, water, and soil. One that we're all familiar with now in the news would be uh, microplastics. Now, we all know that uh, we release hundreds of millions of tons of plastics every year into the environment, and this has been happening for a long time. But these plastics can also actually break down into micro-sized versions. Another form of emerging contaminants that is a hot topic now is uh, disinfection byproducts. Can you explain a bit more about why these emerging contaminants matter to human health? How prevalent is this issue? Emerging contaminants are really a global issue and a global threat. These compounds are present across the world and in all different environmental matrices like our water, air, and soil. Putting out compounds into the environment, potentially the tens of thousands of compounds a day, and we don't really have a good or full understanding of their toxicity. One of the examples of effects of emerging contaminants in the environment, we could take pharmaceuticals, for example. Their overuse could lead to microbes getting resistance against them. And this is an issue of antibacterial or antimicrobial resistance that then these same microbes that pharmaceuticals are created to fight against actually become resistant against them because they are exposed to them so much. The consequences of failing to control emerging contaminants could not only lead to severe contamination of our soil, water, and air, but they could also have unintended consequences where the products that we create actually no longer become useful for the purposes. And this could affect us for several generations. So is a solution a balance of preventing the contaminants and also mitigating them when they're released into the environment? Ideally, one would say if we wanted to reduce or eliminate threats from emerging contaminants in the environment, then source control and prevention is always better than the cure. It's a little bit more nuanced than that because many of the chemicals that we use and that enter the environment do actually have intended beneficial uses for their use in the first place. So because of that, we need to balance the use of chemicals that are employed in our our daily life for betterment of human life with their overuse in the environment. Can you explain a bit more about how you conduct analysis of these contaminants? Most uh, emerging contaminants are required to be measured at very low, typically nanogram per liter levels. To give you a perspective of what one nanogram per liter is, it is the equivalent of one drop of water in around 25 Olympic-sized swimming pools. Some of these emerging contaminants are actually toxic and hazardous to human health, even at such low nanogram per liter concentrations. The gold standard for analysis of these uh, organic emerging contaminants, at least, would be the use of a tandem quadrupole mass spectrometer, or MSMS, that is coupled to a uh, gas chromatograph, or GC, or a liquid chromatograph, also known as an LC. Typically, these instruments can simultaneously measure uh, hundreds of these emerging contaminants at the same time. These instruments are an extremely powerful tool along with the software that they come with to actually identify new and emerging contaminants that we previously did not know were present in the environment. Technology is always on the move. Where do you see the future of emerging contaminant analysis going? 
one of the limitations of in-lab testing is that it has to be done inside the lab. And so for environmental samples like, you know, water, air, or soil, they have to first be then collected at sufficient quantities in the environment. I can see in the near future that we will be able to measure emerging contaminants in the field itself with the use of more sensitive instrumentation, robust sampling techniques, and also very enhanced and smart software. With so many new chemicals being released into our environment, how do we know which ones are the priority so we can regulate them effectively? Effect-directed analysis or EDA approach is what I think is the future of environmental testing. Effect-directed analysis means we would take a water or air or soil sample and then first run them through a list of biological assays with known toxicity endpoints to determine if these samples are toxic to any of those endpoints. If they do come back as being toxic to any of these endpoints, then we take this sample and we analyze them chemically. So doing this allows us and regulators to actually prioritize what chemicals need to be regulated. So I think this is the next avenue of testing, which will not only improve prioritization of regulation, but also determine how chemicals are actually measured and monitored in the environment. It sounds like change is coming to emerging and contaminant research and fast. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us, Tarun. Tarun had mentioned disinfectant byproducts as a growing area of concern in environmental contamination research, and that's where I was headed next to speak to an Agilent customer on the front line of this relatively new environmental battleground. My name is Susan Richardson, and I'm a professor in the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry at the University of South Carolina. Tell us a little more about what you do, Susan. Sure. My expertise is in environmental analytical chemistry, and particularly using high-resolution mass spectrometry to identify unknown contaminants in drinking water with a focus on disinfection byproducts. My research projects involve things like trying to discover the forcing factors of toxicity in drinking water, and this is related to disinfection byproducts. And also, we've got a project looking at wastewater reuse, so turning treated wastewater into drinking water and trying to find better ways of removing some of the troublesome compounds that are from wastewater so they don't get into drinking water. And also looking at desalination. We're looking at disinfection byproducts and desalination and also the gamish of stuff that gets returned to the sea. I've been hearing from my colleague about how the potential health risks of disinfection byproducts are quite serious. So why run the risk at all? We used to have millions of people dying from waterborne diseases, so hugely important to try to remove those pathogens. Disinfection byproducts are formed by the reaction of disinfectants like chlorine, chloramine, ozone, chlorine dioxide, and even UV light with naturally occurring organic matter present in our rivers, in our lakes, and even in groundwater. These are an unintended consequence of trying to make drinking water safe. These are contaminants that form during drinking water treatment, or they can form sometimes during wastewater treatment too, because often wastewater is treated with chlorine 
or UV at the very end before sending the water to the rivers. So these are things formed in treatment. Most DBPs, disinfection byproducts, continue to form as that water goes through the pipe. So generally, the longer it takes to get to your home, the higher levels of DBPs you might get in your drinking water. And the potential health complications from these DBPs are very serious, I understand. Yes, the health implications include bladder cancer in people, a little bit of colorectal cancer, also miscarriage, and birth defects. But the important thing is we don't know which DBPs are responsible still. And that's been the crux of my research is trying to find out which DBPs are the bad actors, which are the ones that are most toxic. How does your lab investigate that? The approaches we use in our lab are generally a combination of target quantification, so looking at target analytes and getting the concentrations of those, and also non-target unknown identification. And we use gas chromatography, GC, with high-resolution mass spectrometry. And we also use liquid chromatography, LC, with high-resolution mass spectrometry for the unknown identification. Using these techniques, we really help to put these unregulated DBPs on the map. There are more than 700 now that we've identified, and my lab is responsible for about half of those, half of what's known. Most research groups use one or the other, but you're missing things if you don't use both. Using both of them together allows us to get a bigger picture of what we're exposed to in the drinking water, not just looking at one small subset of compounds. And then working with toxicologists, we can figure out which of those 700 are the most important ones, most toxic ones that we need to develop quantitative analytical methods for to know the concentrations. Obviously that requires a lot of technology as well as a lot of human man hours. Has technology been keeping up with your workload? Improved technology has helped us in the last few years. I would say definitely with LC mass spec and, you know, LC high resolution mass spec, the instruments have gotten so much better. They're more sensitive. The software so much better than it used to be. So I think it's helping us, giving us tools to identify unknown compounds a little faster than we were back in the day. But I don't trust just using the software itself. A lot of people are doing this big data thing and they're using software exclusively without using your human brain in between, you know, to, to really question that data and ground truth that data. And so I think it's still important to spend some real human time in thinking through some of these things. But definitely the software has helped us and the improved detection limits have helped us a lot. Absolutely. And do you see signs that your work is moving the policy needle on regulation of these contaminants? EPA likes to have very hard data before they propose to regulate any new DVPs. But I can say that for sure, EPA has been definitely following our research and is making decisions partly based on our research. And in fact, I would say our discovery of these very toxic Iodinated disinfection byproducts has very much influenced their thinking. Thanks so much, Susan. I'll let you get back to your world-leading research. 
My conversations today about how integrated our environment is to our human health really brought home how much we own our own future. The bigger issues can feel daunting when viewed from the ground up, that's for certain. But there's comfort and inspiration to be found in the work of people like Susan Richardson, who identify specific threats and work tirelessly to solve them through ingenuity and hard work. Working alone is not going to solve all environmental challenges, but together we can make a difference. This is clearly demonstrated by the critical work of people like Gerardo, Susan and Teru, who are already making a big impact on the way we perceive and interact with our own environment.